Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Barb Poe. The men yell to the driver, Go Diablo, go! And I hear two pops, gunshots. And we speed down the highway, far away from the karate school. That and more. But first, if you like the storytelling that you hear on the Risk podcast, and if you think you might like to give some of this storytelling thing a shot yourself, Go visit our school over at thestorystudio.org. There's online workshops. There's video workshops that you can download and take in your own time. There's one-on-one training. There's corporate workshops. Storytelling for business. Storytelling for personal growth. Storytelling for the stage. The producers and story coaches for the Risk Podcast are also the faculty members at thestorystudio.org. And our custom-tailored corporate workshops that we've done for folks like Google, Pfizer, Citibank, American Express, Zendesk. We've also done workshops at universities like NYU and Princeton. And workshops for smaller organizations or teams. That can all be found at thestorystudio.org. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is George Harrison behind me now. Wow, do we have a fascinating episode for you this week. We're calling it Cults. Three stories, 
about cults. I'll tell you, I could not have been more thrilled with how our live show in New York at Caveat went last Thursday. Holy cow, we're really, really back. And the next one is on March 17th. You can always find out more at risk-show.com slash tour. And I am so, so grateful for the folks who bought me a book of poetry. I am so blessed with so much wonderful poetry to read now. Now, in some cases, the Amazon wishlist thing, it's hard to tell sometimes who sent what. But I do know that Julie Goldstein, Michael Kaplan, uh, Chris and Ann Hoffman, Jerry Pratt, J.C. Cassis. I think this one is my friend Joe Schapa and Lynn Vu. <laughs> I always struggle with the pronunciation of the Danish there. But I'm going to keep that wish list on my link tree so anyone can get me a book of poetry anytime from now till forever. <laughs> Let's get to these incredible stories. In a little bit, we are going to hear from Ryan Estrada, who's become a favorite of ours on the show. But before that, a story by Angela Sawyer. Oh my gosh, the, the sound design on this one is very special from our uh, audio editor, John LaSala. You can find Angela on the site Seven Arcadins. And here she is now with a story we call Yod Be With Us. to know about me first is that I love music. Your lady, that's me, is a complicated lady. My favorite Beatle is Yoko. I do like music a lot and I like the weird stuff, but sometimes that gets me into weird situations. Like for example, I once had this job where I wrote music reviews for a newspaper in Cleveland. And that might not sound that weird. It's just a very circa 2000 sentence. And the only thing that's weird about that job to me is that it was in Cleveland, which is a place that I had never set foot in at that time. Like these days, remote work is very typical, but back in circa 2000, that was called lying. So I had this job. Here's how I got it. An old friend called me up on a landline phone who I hadn't talked to in a long time. And he said, hey, I just got this new job. I'm an editor for a newspaper and I can't find anybody to write about music for me. And I was instantly very suspicious. That would be like if now someone sent you a text that said, man, I just cannot find any white dudes to be on my podcast. It's just ridiculous. But... He seemed like he was about to give me money, so I didn't correct him. I just let him talk. 
what he wanted to do was he's like, here, I'm going to pay you. I'll send you compact discs. They were fancy then. I'll send you compact discs in the mail and then you listen to them and you send me an email with what you think and then I'll print it in the paper. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, fine. Uh, like I said, I like weird music. So I thought he was going to send me a bunch of little unknown bands from the Midwest that I hadn't heard of. Several weeks later, I got a package in the mail and I opened it and out felt like a Billy Joel and a Livingston Taylor CD. And instantly I was like, oh, I am out of my depth. I'm used to little zines that no one reads or liner notes for records that no one buys. Very comfortable explaining a band that you haven't heard of, but I was like, what do I have to say that people don't know about these bands, you know? So I sat down, I put on my thinking cap and I made a plan and I wrote, hey, if you have a mom, she is going to love this dude, Billy Joel. Good night, my angel, time to close. I just pretended that I had never heard of them before and wrote what I would write anyway. Then I sent it off and that went very well. My editor liked it a lot. People in the paper apparently liked it. Went super well. I couldn't believe I was getting paid for it, for one thing. But the only problem with the job was that both me and the editor were just fuck-ups. We're just, you know, people who don't have money and can't get things right. So little by little, the packages with the compact discs showed up later and later. And pretty soon, the packages were arriving after the deadline that I needed to have sent the review in. But I was like, well, you know, that's really just a matter of scheduling. You know what Billy Joel sounds like. I know what Billy Joel sounds like. Who's to make a big deal about it? So I didn't worry about it. And I was just happy that someone liked what I was doing. I got a, another phone call from my editor a little while later. And he was like, man, I love it. Everything's going so well. I want to expand your job. I want you to write about shows that are happening in Cleveland. And we'll have this band and this band and this band. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You do remember that I do not live in Cleveland. And he was like, no, no, don't worry. These are just going to be show previews. Like, I'll just send you a list of who's playing and you look them up and then you write about it and we'll print it. And I was like, well, that sounds like it could be fun anyway. Like, I'll find out about bands that I haven't heard of. And at that time, when you found out about a band, it was cool because the internet was so slow, you would get this line. You met everyone haircut first, you know? So it was a really nice way to meet people. And I was like, that sounds exciting. I'll do it. Here's the problem. Again, we were just both screwed up people who couldn't get our shit together. And so little by little, the scheduling got off. And very quickly, before I even really realized it, I was writing music reviews of shows that I hadn't attended in Cleveland. Here's how I solved that problem. Pretty much every time, if the show had already happened and I didn't really know what I was doing, I would be like, Hey, have you checked out this band? Wow, they are rebels. And did you notice there was almost a fight by the bathroom? And since that happens at every show with every band, it worked perfectly. So everybody loved it. And the more I lied, the better it went.
so again, the editor called me up on the phone and he expanded my job and he was like, you're doing so great. I love your writing. I want you to write a huge, huge feature. I'm going to give you loads of pages and you write about anything you want. And I was like, anything? He goes, anything. So I was like, hey, here's my chance to tell the truth, to do something that's in my wheelhouse, to do something I care about. So I wrote a big article about my very favorite 1960s sex cult leader, Father Yacht. <laughs> Father Yacht is a real guy. Father Yacht's a real guy. He's someone who had about 14 wives and many children. He and his group of mostly ladies and a couple of gentlemen whose motivations I don't understand had a macrobiotic restaurant in Southern California in the 1960s. And their restaurant made a lot of money because the cult members of Father Yacht's cult wore like linen robes all the time that you could see through. It was like a hippie version of Hooters. So they wore their linen robes and they got whatever drugs they wanted. And they made so much money that they bought a fleet of limos and they could drive around the city in them. And they had enough that they could just buy whatever they wanted. So some of the members of the cult bought musical instruments and they would go up into the attic of the place where they lived late at night after this restaurant was closed, play music, which they did not have training in or whatever. And they made records and sold them at the cash register in the restaurant. And those records are terrible. Make no mistake. They are very bad and I love them very dearly. I wrote up this article, said all these things, and that article did so well that it got picked up around the country, which is great, except that it also got printed in San Francisco, which happened to be the place where one of the rare male cult members of Father Yod's cult lived and he read the article and he got very angry and he sent a letter to his local paper. So I didn't know any of this. I was just sitting at home and then one day I got a landline phone call and I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you get a call from somebody and you can just hear that they're wearing shoulder pads. This woman called me up and she was very upset and she was like, I am a high powered newspaper editor. I am so fancy and my company is about to be sued by some crazy hippie because of what you said. And I was like, what made that guy upset? And she's like, you said that he did drugs and that he didn't wear pants for like 10 years. And I was like, okay, okay. So here are some photos of this guy wearing no pants and you can see his very bloodshot eyes. And here's a photo of him with a bunch of ladies and you know, ladies in limos with their linen robes flying open and the whole nine yards. It felt crazy because it was the one time that I had really tried to tell the truth when I wrote and I was being accused of lying and I was somehow being accused by the one person on the face of the earth who was weirder than me. It was a weird time. Anyway, luckily the editor believed me and she was like, okay, it seems like you have a reasonable case. Do you want to write a rebuttal? to this letter and I was like of course so I sat down and I limbered up my fingers and I wrote dear rainbow genie I'm such a huge fan I went as you once for Halloween and nobody knew who I was but 
I love the way you play the guitar, but did you think your band sounded like you too? It does not. You are very inept. Also, if you were not involved in any orgies, as you claim, that was just a matter of scheduling. This is a sex cult orgy having place. So I wrote all that up. And Rainbow Jean had said in his letter that I would never amount to anything, and I decided that was A-OK with me. Five years later, I finally made it to Cleveland. I was in a little, very artsy, hardcore band. Uh, we dressed up in costumes for all of our performances. On that little particular tour, I was the fork. We were all silverware. <laughs> If you have a weird little band like that, you do have to go on tour. It's required because if you play for your friends after one or two times, they all hate you and then you gotta go play for somebody else. So we were trying to find shows around and we made it out to Cleveland. And you know, shows like that, they just happen in like little galleries or dingy bars or whatever. And not that many people show up, but everybody has fun and it's fine. So we go to this place, I'm not expecting anything but it's a beautiful little gallery. And somehow like 30, 35 people show up to this show and we play and everybody's very into it and excited and they're vibing. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, maybe we're good. <laughs> and we get done. And the instant we stop making noise, this woman runs up to the stage and she goes, hey, are you Angela Sawyer? And I was like, well, yes, I am. And she goes, man, I've been coming to shows in this town for years. I've been looking for you. Where have you been? And I don't, how did she know my name? Did she read it in a show preview? And I was like, oh, I got to get out of here immediately. Oh, uh, we must have just missed each other. Ships in the night. I got right out of there. Uh, it's just a matter of scheduling. supposed to be performing at an 8 o'clock spoken word show in South Korea. But as I run and look down at my phone, I see that it's 8.05 and I have three missed calls. So just as I'm apologetically texting, I'm heading down the alley right now, I'm sorry, I look up and see two people with their arms out wide blocking my path. It's an older Korean woman and a young-looking Korean man. I don't know what they want. Have I done something wrong? Am I breaking some rule? Why are they trying to stop me? The woman just says, you time? And I say, it's 8.05. She says, no, 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 no. You time with us? I have no time for this, so I try to dodge and weave around the wall, and I say, I have no time, I'm late for a show. She asks, show? What show? So in my broken crane, I explain the show I'm going to perform and invite them to come along if they want to, but 
explain I have to go. She says, no, 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 no. You come with us. Spend time. Grabs my arm. I'm a little freaked out at this point. I kind of loosen the grip on my arm, dodge, weave, make it to the staircase, head down, and do my set. I leave the venue at midnight. There are a few other venues that empty out in the same alley, and there's a group of nice locals talking to my friends, asking if they want to go out and get a drink together. You know, they're curious about the show. They want to make foreigner friends. It's nice. I've lived in Korea for a few years at this point, and people are always very friendly and welcoming, and it's great. And I think maybe... That's all this couple was trying to do earlier. They were just strangely aggressive and violent about it. Subway's closed, so I gotta walk home. About 10 minutes in, I look down the street and I see the shadow waving at me. There's a couple of shadows. That's that same woman again, same young man. And they run right up to me. She says, you show? I say, oh, the show's finished. She says, you have time? And I'm like, time for what exactly? She says, time with us. At least she's not violently grabbing me this time. But I'm still incredibly confused. I have no idea what these people want. I turn to the young man. He is still dead silent. Woman reaches out, puts her hands on my arm and whispers, you want to play with us? I'm like, play with you? She whispers, three, together, play. Have these two been stalking me for four hours looking for a three-way? I'm like, no, thank you. Uh, It's a little late. I have to go home and see my wife. I start walking. They follow me. She asks, where are you home? I don't want these people to know where I live, all right? So I kind of stammer out a neighborhood that's like 10 minutes past my neighborhood, hoping that'll throw them off the scent and they won't know where my actual house is. But that's a mistake. Because now they assume that if I'm walking that far, I must have lots of time to kill or else I would have taken a taxi. So she says, we follow you. Wife, play together. Does this bold cougar really out stalking the streets at night looking for swingers? So I just say, I have to go. And I start walking faster. They start walking faster. She yells after me, you don't like play? And I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you mean play? One puts her hands together, bows a little bit, and says, Religion? And I'm like, Oh, you want to pray together. I know it's a cliche for the dumb American to misunderstand the accent, but in my defense, it was being whispered at me while I ran away. Both the woman and the man make prayer hands and say, Yes, together, play. I now realize that what these two actually are is recruiters from the cult down the road. They have whole teams whose job it is to bring in foreigners because it helps make their organization seem global instead of local. I've heard stories of people who just wanted to be polite and followed someone and had their awkward group photos plastered under recruitment flyers for years on end. And I'd seen members like this at the subway, but I never expected to have them trying to whisk me away to an undisclosed location at midnight. I said no thanks and ran away. No, I did not end up joining a cult that night, though it probably would have been preferable to having to wake up my wife and explain why I'd led two strangers to our door who were looking for a four-way. We have the top 10 scariest cults you don't want to meet. The most 
people who would consider themselves intelligent beings that say, well, that's, that's absurd. What's all this doomsday stuff? Well, God, I guess you're my best friend, being I invented you. The mind that you had as a human is aborted. People go and they find anomalies, and then I've kind of retrospectively gone back and seen how I did believe that stuff. If you were going to join a cult, what would it be about? In the spiritual world is where I live. I exist in places you never even dreamed of. I'll tell you something that's even more remarkable. I'm here to offer you an opportunity to know the truth so that if you can connect with it, then you might survive. Frankly, whatever you have heard, if you haven't heard it from us, I can assure you, we are not what you expect. You can't deprogram someone who is not in a cult, assholes. Now you can say, well, I can't believe that. Well, it's up to you whether you believe that or not. You'll have to decide that for yourself. This is Risk. This is the People's Temple Choir. This is Jim Jones. Cult, you're hearing behind me now. They were a cult that made pretty good music. Before that, an interstitial by our editor Taj Easton. And before that, that anecdote by Ryan Estrada, who you can find at ryanestrada.com, and that piece was edited by our editor, Hope Brush. And before that, Yoko Ono, doing a little uh, cover of Billy Joel's song, Big Shot. Folks, most big podcasts these days have big corporate entities behind them, pouring money into their staffs and, you know, giving them plenty of resources. Risk remains independent. And if you really value this, you know, like unique and extraordinary content that we're regularly putting out, give us some help over at patreon.com slash risk. We've always got bonus content going on over there. This week, we have Michelle Carlo did a check-in with me about that extraordinary story that she told on last week's episode. And we have a bonus story also going up this week by Mike O'Brien. We got a man out back. And I'm like, cool, get him, man. Bring him to me. And, <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they pulled guns on my downstairs neighbor who was for some reason peeing in his own yard. You can hear that and so much more bonus content over at patreon.com slash risk. And of course, you'll be helping keep risk running by becoming a member over there. And if you want to make a one-time donation, you could do that at 
paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our final story on this week's episode is truly extraordinary. I'm so thrilled that Barb Poe shared this story with us so eloquently and so courageously. It's quite a journey here we're about to take, and remarkable editing as well by Taj Easton. There are various kinds of abusive situations in this story, but I think some people are going to find it especially helpful. So without further ado, here is Barb Poe with a story we call Homecoming.
I'm 25 years old and I'm about to enter into the karate school where I've been a student for the past six years. I drove here with the master because I've been living with him for three months now. Hey, Barbara. Ma, I have some mail for you. The master says, go ahead. I'll meet you inside, and he disappears into the school. I walk over to my mother, who I haven't seen in three months. I just wanted to give you these letters, she said. I thought they might be important. And I stare down at the envelopes, and she slowly and methodically thumbs through them, one at a time, agonizingly slow. This one is from Citibank, and this one is from SUNY Stony Brook, and this one is from, and I'm transfixed. Mainly because I've been swallowing Valium around the clock for these past three months a prescription that the master got for me from his own personal doctor who happens to be a student at the school. But not because I wanted them. I mean, the master just insisted I needed them. I hear men talking and laughing, and I look up and there's these three guys walking briskly through the parking lot. And it looks like they're headed to the deli next door, cutting through the school's lot, and... And look, my mother nudges me. Here's one that I don't know. Where, where do you think this came from, Barbara? I dopely look back down to the envelopes in her hands when suddenly I'm lifted off my feet and I'm staring up at the sky and moving away from the school. The three men carry me to a white van at the end of the parking lot. In the distance, I hear someone yell, holy shit. Then I hear my mother yell, you're okay, Barbara. I go limp and the men almost drop me because all of my training has kicked in. I see a highly tense situation. The master, who is a licensed hypnotist, trained us not to react with fear, but instead to control our physiological responses. He said, this is the ultimate control of one's own body and mind. And we practice day after day, calming the mind while under enemy attack so that we only react to actual attempted assault and not to verbal threats. It's like a concerted effort to override the trigger to the flight or fight response mechanism. And I was good at it. Plus, I guess the mega doses of Valium probably had a hand in it, too. Well, the back of the van opens, and the men place me on the floor inside, and the driver of the van yells, Hurry up! He's got a gun! And the three men jump inside with me and slam the door shut. I know the man with the gun is my master, and in a second he's going to jump into the back of the van and lay out these men like Bruce Lee style, and I'll be saved. And this will just be a blip on our day and a story to tell the karate classes for many years to come. But instead, the men yell to the driver, Go, Diablo, go! And I hear two pops, gunshots. And we speed down the highway, far away from the karate school. 
One of the guys is holding his hand, which is bleeding profusely. I feel something bubbling up inside me. I've been laying almost perfectly still, but then a low guttural roar comes out from me. And I go berserk. I'm throwing kicks and punches and mostly just flailing around. Because fighting while on my back was never something we covered at the school, and I'm not very effective. It's more like the wrestling I used to do with my brothers when I was a kid. The men, they quickly overwhelm me. Throw me the duct tape, Sandman. A skinny guy with a red beard wraps my wrists together. A heavier guy with yellow curly hair wraps my ankles. You do know your parents sent us, Red says, which I suppose he says to make me feel safer, but it doesn't. Ever since I moved in with the master, my parents have been trying to convince me I'm in a cult. The master stopped allowing them access to me, as he put it. You fucking guys are dead. You don't know what you've done, I threatened. They sit with their backs against the side of the van and exchange glances like they've heard it all before. You criminals, you know that? And you, Sandman is applying pressure to his wound. I say, you deserve to bleed to death. But if you don't, he's gonna find you and kill you. And then Sandman looks away from his bloody hand and stares right into my eye. Honey, he says, he's forgotten you already. I look away, and it's the first chink in my armor. And a tear rolls down my face because deep down, I think I know Sandman's right. After all, I only moved in with the master because his previous girlfriend of 15 years left him. And then one day later, I was in the master's office and he was telling me he wanted to train me to be an instructor, which meant I would now be part of the inner circle. And just like that, his girlfriend was forgotten and I was in. The curly haired guy caught me crying and he said, you may not believe this now, but You're going to be thanking us in a couple of days. All right, is she secure, Diablo says. He pulls into a sandy lot on a side road. The abductors snap into action. The doors fly open. They jump out. They drag me across the floor, and they transfer me to the back of another van. My mother and father, who are in their car, stick their heads in to the back of the van. Barbara, you're okay, don't be scared. How could you do this to me, I said. And I hear my brother's voice. Hi, Barb. Fuck you, you fucking traitor. You see, when I was 17, my brother started going to this karate school. He tried to get me to go every day for two years. Barb, this master is only one of 13 grandmasters in the world. He's unbelievable. After two years of constant badgering, I agreed to give it a try. I was 19 years old. 
Now fast forward to when I moved in with the master and my parents begged my brother to read a book called Combat and Cult Mind Control. They were convinced I was in a cult. And after reading it, my brother came to class and pulled me off to the side. Barb, we're in a cult, you have to leave with me, he said. I refused and I went into the office and ratted him out to the master who called in two of his henchmen, bind him. But Robert, my brother, was long gone. And now, here he was. I fucking hate you, I said to him. I love you, Barb. Come on, we gotta go, Diablo says. And my family's gone, and it's just me and the four men again. Where are we going? I asked as the van starts up and we start to drive away to a safe house. You can't deprogram someone who's not in a cult, assholes. We're not deprogrammers. We're our rescuers. You're criminals. Actually, the FBI is well aware of us. When something like this happens, they call our boss and ask if it's a rescue. And they're going to talk to you in a couple of days. Is that how long this is going to take? I say, days? There's silence. I roll onto my side and cry. I fall asleep, and when I open my eyes, the van is stopped. And I find out later that we've traveled from New York all the way to Pennsylvania. And Red is kneeling over me and... I'm just laying there, and he says to me, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing but woods for miles. There's over a foot of snow on the ground, and it's 20 degrees out. If I cut you loose, will you walk into the house with us? I'm exhausted, and I have to use the bathroom, and so I nod my head. Red nods to Larry who uses the scissors to cut the duct tape from my wrists and ankles. Come on, kid. I know even though I'm 25, I still look and feel like I'm 19. The age I was when I first started at the school, and there's a reason for that. It's sort of an arrested development. Well, Red was not kidding. We are truly in the middle of a snow covered nowhere. I want to run just to feel free. I haven't felt free in months, maybe years, maybe maybe ever. And so I do. I run. And they don't even chase me because after a few steps, my legs can't even lift themselves up out of the deep, deep snow. And I collapse into the snow and I'm crying again. I don't think I've cried in years. And now I've cried like three times in one day. Larry walks over to me and he extends his hands out, but I don't take them. I get up on my own and wipe my tears. My parents and my brother are inside the house waiting. Barbara, honey, it's, it's going to be okay, my mother says to me. No, Ma. No, it's not. And that night, I sleep in the corner of the bedroom floor they put me in, despite the fact that there's a bed in the room. 
I feel like a captured animal, so I act like one. Through the night, Sandman, Red, and Larry take turns sitting guard outside my door. The next day, I meet the deprogrammer. Hi, Barbara, I'm Joe. I curse at him and threaten him, which embarrasses my father, who yells from the living room, You better behave, young lady. Behave! Behave! You people are nuts, you know? I have a right to live my life the way I want. I'm an adult and you people kidnapped me. Hey, you know what? I'll come back when you're calmer and you're ready to talk. Joe leaves and I'm alone again. I look at Larry who's standing outside my door and he shakes his head at me like I had screwed up. And I lay down on the bed and I just stare up at the ceiling and it becomes clear to me that there's only going to be one way out of here. I have to talk to Joe, the deprogrammer. I have to tell him what he wants to hear, that, yep, you're right, I'm in a cult. He'll tell my parents that he got through to me, they'll take me home, and then I'll go back to the master and sue each and every last one of them, maybe worse. So after a bit, I say, Hey, Larry, can you ask Joe to come back in? And they don't play any games. Joe comes right in, sits in a chair across from the bed, and I sit up. Joe is mild-mannered. He's an easygoing guy, and he seems kind of artsy, and uh, to me, he looks Native American. And I like Native Americans. When I was a kid, I used to escape the abuse and the arguments in my house and go to the woods and pretend I was an Indian girl running and hiding from the white men. I liked feeling like I was apart from the rest of the world. I mean, I always felt that way anyway, a child forgotten. Sometimes my parents would argue so badly and Their fights would get violent, and sometimes the police would show up at my house. And I always wished that the officers would take me away with them. But they never did. They just left me there, time and time again, with my very mentally ill mother and my angry father. Well, anyway... I like Joe, despite our situation. So, Joe, I say to him, you think I'm in a cult, huh? I do, he says. After talking to your parents and your brother, I I do believe you're in a cult. But I want to hear what you have to say. So I'll give you the information that I have about cults, and you can ask me whatever questions you want, and you can share anything you want to, and then you'll decide for yourself. And then there's this part of me that's hesitant. There's a part of me that's afraid to find out if I'm in a cult. Because then what? Back to living with my parents? I mean, all I ever wanted was to get away from them. I dreamed of going away to college ever since I knew what college was. Then when I was a senior in high school, my parents told me I couldn't go to college. They wouldn't pay for me to go away to school. In fact, Why did I even need college at all? Find a man to take care of you, they said. I guess being the mistress of a 55-year-old karate grandmaster living with him and his wife 
wasn't what they had in mind. So you think I'm brainwashed, Joe? Well, cults use mind control, he started to explain. He said, mind control is a system of influences that disrupts an individual's identity. Like your beliefs or your behaviors, your thinking, even your emotions. And it replaces your own identity with a new identity, one that serves the cult, and in this case, the master. So I think of who I was when I was 19 and what I wanted then. Honestly, I hadn't even begun to discover my identity on my own, apart from my family. I think of the path I walked these past six years. Joe gave me words to the experiences that I described to him. My brother told me about the school and the Grandmaster. Ah, it was your brother who recruited you. I guess I say. From the first time I walked in, I tell Joe I, I felt part of a family. It was like a warm hug. That's called love bombing, Joe says. The long-term members make the new recruits feel welcome and special. I think back to myself at 19, and I did feel special. I mean, I was the youngest woman in the school, and though I couldn't take classes with the master because he had to be advanced for that, the sensei that taught the beginner and the intermediate classes sure did take a liking to me. He'd invite me to stay after class and have coffee with him and some of the other students. And Sensei would impart his wisdom to us, and we sat at his feet like he was Socrates. He said we were like ashtrays, and he had to clean us out in order to make us an empty vessel to then fill with clear water. Ah, that's the process of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. You know, Joe's got an epithet for everything. So the school's ideology was um, like Eastern leaning for sure. But since I never gave credit to Zen Buddhism or Taoism, he acted as if these tenants, which he probably got from reading the Tao of Pooh, were his own ideas. And because I was unworldly and gullible and enamored with him, I believed he was a genius. <laughs> and Sensei never failed to talk up the master. You know, he uh, talked about him with the same reverence that believers talk about God. And Sensei would be, had been studying with the master for, for decades. So he was like a loyal servant. And we were all elevated by the fact that we studied with this master. Oh, well, that's elitist mentality, Joe says. <laughs> and how about outsiders, people not in the group, he asks me. Well, of course, anyone outside the group was inferior. And at first it started as like just us being our school and our way of self-defense versus other schools that taught like katas, which were according to the sensei, choreographed dances. Then us was us members versus anyone like not in the school, including my friends, my family. 
So after a time, I dropped all my friends. And Joe explains this us versus them thinking to me. You know, it's important that cults separate you from anyone who might give you information that is in conflict with their claims. So cults require unquestioning devotees, he said. You know, they they want you to be all in. Well, I was. Not at first. When I first started, I only took one class a week. But over time, it became two classes a day, every day. And my devotion did not go unnoticed. And so, when the master's girlfriend of uh, 15 years left the school and we were all warned not to have any contact with her, I was invited to take classes with the master in order to become an instructor, he said. Uh, This was like being invited by God to sit at his table. And then all the men that I had seen around the school for years that were unapproachable because of their stature were now giving me the same respect that they gave the master. And finally, I felt extraordinary and powerful, and even the master's abuse felt like necessary lessons to strengthen my resolve. Like when he broke my arm during class, and then he hypnotized my pain away. It wasn't until hours later that he took me to a doctor who took an x-ray and showed me where it was fractured in two places. And at times the master drugged me, and he raped me, and he never let me out of his sight. I had no car. I had no way to get away. So, I guess I was apart from the world, just like I wanted to be. Well, it's the middle of day three of my deprogramming, and I feel overwhelmed with all this new information. I feel woozy, like I'm on a -a tilt-a-whirl ride that won't stop. And all the beliefs of the past six years suddenly shift. And I lean over the bed and I vomit. Now they call it snapping when your original personality comes back. And yes, sometimes it's as sudden and as obvious as that. And I feel like the world has flipped right side up again. And all the black and white us versus them thinking has fractured and just dissolved before my eyes. And Joe looks at me and he says, Welcome back, Barbara. It's nice to meet you. And now you have some decisions to make. You see, they weren't honest about what they were doing to you. But now that your eyes are wide open, you can make the decision for yourself. I mean, as far as cult status goes, just as, you know, being a leader's girlfriend is a prestigious title to hold. It's one way to spend a life. Is that the way you want to spend your life? And I don't answer. I wasn't 
thinking about the master. I wasn't thinking about the school at all. I wasn't even thinking about my future. I was thinking about my parents, who were just in the other room. I thought about how they screwed up my life. That's what parents do more often than not. But then sometimes some outrageous act of heroism. They may try to save you. And if you're feeling magnanimous, you'll let them. For this week's episode, folks, this is The Who behind me now. This is a remix of this song from Tommy by DJ Say One. We just heard from Barb Poe. And, you know, we would like to do a sequel to this episode. We're still accepting pitches about people's experiences in or around cults. I'm so grateful to all of our story coaches and editors for what a great job everyone did on this episode. Of course, the whole episode is put together by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, if you live anywhere near Los Angeles, come see the Risk live show when we restart our Risk Los Angeles monthly show on March 15th at Hotel Cafe. You can get tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. A couple days later on March 17th, the next Risk Live show in New York City will be happening at Caveat. Again, tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. And you can get tickets for live streaming either of those shows as well. The March 15th show in Los Angeles or the March 17th show in New York. All that is at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, did you know you can also hire me personally? For storytelling training, you can come find me at kevinallison.com and follow Risk on all our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow our discussion group on Facebook. We have the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. There's also our subreddit, Risk Podcast, where people talk about the show as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at 
the Kevin Allison, and you can find anything else you want to know about our show at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. was in the Mid-America Motel in Salina, Kansas, and uh, I, uh, I took some LSD that turned out to be uh, considerably more than I thought I was taking, so much that I thought I was going to die. So I started to run out of the hotel room to call for help. I was naked and um, I got to the door and I imagined what would happen next when I went outside that door. That the naked old man in room 125 is crazy and it's Thorazine and all that and I decided there must be easier ways to die than that. So I decided to stay in the room. I sat down in front of the television set, which I had on, but the volume off, and I had a picture of my guru in the center of it, so that it was all coming out of his head. And I said to him, please let me die. I think I'm ready to die, and I decided they'd find me the next day, and it would be interesting. I mean, they just find this guy, and I had all these questions I would ask of the universe, written all over the room, so that my mind would fall on a question. And uh, I thought, that it's an interesting way to go. It's like crap's last tape, but, you know. So um, I kept asking to die, and I watched that my mind kept slowing down and slowing down and slowing down and slowing down until pretty soon I saw each thought arise, exist, and pass away. The next thought arise, exist, pass away. And then I saw there was a space between each thought. It was getting bigger and bigger as my mind penetrated more deeply. And then I went into the space between two thoughts and there was a break in consciousness and I wasn't. And then the next moment I thought, well in that case I can be anything I want. And I came back. And then I started to recreate the universe after that. 